This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, sometimes it's the paranormal. Either way, you're going to find it right here on Beyond Reality Radio. Thank you for joining us tonight, kicking off another week in style. We've got a great guest joining us tonight. Stefan Schwartz will be with us. He's a futurist, a scientist, and an author. We'll be talking about his work with remote viewing and its uses in archaeology, national security, and time travel. Stefan uses remote viewing to see what the future will be like. So that'll be an interesting uh, conversation because I haven't heard that done before. Uh, We'll bring him in in just a little bit. Looking ahead, because we do have a great week of programs. Tomorrow night, Gerard Artson will be with us. He's an educator and an author, and he's also a student of Ageless, the Ageless Wisdom. And he asserts that people behind the UFOs are on a spiritual mission to help our ailing world. So it'll be UFOs tomorrow night. And then on Wednesday night, Mark Kies, who is a parapsychologist and director of the Pennsylvania Paranormal Association, will explain how his criminal investigation background, he was a former Pennsylvania state trooper, now informs paranormal investigations. He's been on a lot of television programs, Paranormal 911. I think Haunted Hospitals or a couple of those programs, uh, Mark has been involved with those. He'll be in the first hour of the program tomorrow night, so we're excited about that. A lot of great stuff coming up. I hope you all had a great weekend. I did. Um, It's nice that it's kind of cooled down a little bit. Uh, You know, and I know I'm going to be complaining about the snow in just a few months. You know that's coming. But I will still take this opportunity to say that that heat that we had a couple weeks ago was, I'm still feeling the effects of it. My, my body still hasn't recovered. Um, it's just tough. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what happens. I guess, I guess over time you just, uh, you know, you want a comfortable, what, 68 to 70 degrees and that's all. Anything higher is too much and anything lower is too low. I don't know. I hate to be a whiner, but there you have it. Um, Let's see. What do we have coming up? Uh, A lot of great stuff, uh, as I mentioned in the program. Of course, I want you to swing by Facebook and give uh, the Facebook page a like at Beyond Reality Radio. Also, stop by my Facebook page, JV Johnson. You can find it easily by just looking up JVJ Paranormal. And then YouTube. Also, swing by YouTube. Give uh, give the YouTube page a subscribe. It's JV Johnson on YouTube as well. A lot of great programs there, including a live stream of the show if you can't get it on a radio station in your market. That list is growing, but there are still some markets where there isn't a radio station. So you can stream it live on YouTube. Also, a nice archive of programs there as well. By the way, I want to thank the shark, Bruce Markison, for filling in for me last week on Thursday night's program. Um, yeah, just wasn't feeling great, so uh, I asked Bruce to come in. He was willing to do it, and he handled the show. He had Bernie Taylor on, uh, and it was a great program. So thank you for supporting Bruce, and thank you to Bruce for doing that for me. I appreciate it. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll bring in our guest again tonight. We'll be talking with Stefan Schwartz. It's Beyond Reality Radio. 
Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a shark and save. Our guest, Stefan Schwartz, will be joining us here. Stefan is a futurist, a scientist, and an author. His website is his name, Stefan with a PH, StefanAschwartz.com. And his new book is called The Amish Girl. We'll be talking about that and remote viewing. Stefan, welcome to Be On Reality Radio. It's a pleasure to have you here. Glad to be on, JV. So um, the first thing I need to know uh, is how long have you been studying and interested in what we call remote viewing? Well, first of all, I'm one of the people that created remote viewing, and I've been doing it since 1968. We knew that you were one of the creators the 1968 figure was were, did you start doing it for the government or were you doing it uh, no. in private study no i what happened to me was i woke up when i was uh 24 end of 23 that's a long story and <laughs> i ended up through a series of very strange coincidences or synchronicities at the Edgar Casey Foundation, right. and I decided to read all of the Edgar Casey readings. Uh, Edgar Casey, in, in in a sense, is the best documented remote viewer in history. Right. And I so he had about fifteen thousand readings, and I decided to read all of them, starting with the first one and reading them sequentially through to the end. And in those days, his lifelong secretary, Gladys Davis, was still alive, and she helped me do that, and Hewlin Casey, his his eldest son. And so I got into that, and then after I'd been at it for, it took me years, after I'd been at it for, I guess, two or three years, I decided I should, st- I didn't know anything about parapsychology. Right. Uh, I decided I ought to start reading the par- formal literature, the formal academic literature, so I, I went back to the very first uh, publication in parapsychology that I could find, which is in the late 19th century, and I read every paper that had ever been published up to, at that point, it was probably 1965. I, this was not long after I'd gotten out of the Army uh, during, the, this is during the Vietnam era, and, um, uh, and I, in 68... Having studied the Casey material and all of this other stuff, Blavatsky, Uspensky, Gurdjieff, uh, the Transcendentalists, uh, Muktananda, uh, Krishnamurti, I mean, you know, everybody you can think of, and read all their books, um, I decided to start doing experiments. I didn't know anybody. And I started by putting a grid in my back garden. I lived in Virginia Beach. And I went out and got a bunch of nylon uh, cable, shipping cable, or shipping rope, and um, I built a 12-part uh, grid, which I later expanded to 144 uh, squares because that gave greater statistical significance. And I would bury um, uh, mason jars with things in them or 
35 millimeter film canisters for those who can remember those with little things in them. And then I mimeographed, that's how long ago it was, a copy of the grid, and I sent it out to friends all over the world. And my, I asked them, can you locate the uh, grid in which the object I'm seeking is buried? And then, and then after you've made the location, could you describe for me what it is? And I had learned from the Casey material that all the senses reported. And so I began doing what in those days I called distant viewing. Uh, a terrible term, just like remote viewing, an awful terrible term, because it has nothing to do with remoteness and it has nothing to do with viewing. (laughs) But anyway, um, that's what we knew in those days. Anyhow, so I started doing this. And um, because I came out of anthropology um, about 1973, uh, another uh, Joe Long, an anthropologist, and I organized a seminar at the American Anthropological Association meetings. Uh, and we, because I didn't know anybody in parapsychology, and we invited all the leading parapsychologists of the day to, and anthropologists to come and make presentations. And from that, I, because of the involvement with anthropology, I was looking for a protocol that would be unimpeachable. And at that time, archaeology, one of the big things about archaeology was where to look. Most of the papers in archaeology, there were a lot of papers in archaeology, and most of the sites that were discovered were discovered serendipitously. You know, uh, a farmer would be plowing a field, and he would turn up a temple. Right. (laughs) Or uh, a road crew would be building a bridge, and they'd turn up... uh, uh, some kind of shrine. And so there was a lot of discussion in archaeology in those days. Where do we look? And so I thought, well, that's perfect. It's perfect triple-blind conditions. Nobody, Everybody agrees that this thing exists, but everybody also agrees they have no idea where it is. So if I can find it using what I call distant viewing or remote viewing, um, then you can't criticize it. Oh, well, somebody knew and they cued you by the way their facial expression went or all the kind of criticism people were getting in those days. Um, And also it allowed me to run a parallel search using electronic remote sensing parallel with the remote viewing project to see whether you could locate the same site uh, using electronic remote sensing ground-penetrating radar, side-scan sonar, uh, proton precession magnetometers, all that kind of thing. And in every case, you could not, but the remote viewers could, in fact, make the location. And so that's how I got started. When you um, first started your experiments, you had the grid in your backyard, and you sent a, uh, a sheet to friends. Were these friends that were involved in the field in some way, or were they? was it just no. more random? They were people like you. Just people you somebody knew. I'd met, mm-hmm. Somebody I'd met. Uh, somebody I'd met at a party. Somebody I'd gone to school with. Uh, you know, my girlfriend's friend. I, I just, just no, just people. And out of that, I learned that, which has now been confirmed by much more research, but at the time, I learned that about 12% of people can do this well. It's like any human skill, you know? Right. It's a, there's a bell curve. 
some people are really good at it, and some people are just don't get it at all. And most people fall somewhere in the middle. It's a little bell curve. Um, and so I, I discovered that some of the people I could do, uh, that I asked to do it, were really good at it. They could do it over and over again. And some people who I thought might be good at it just couldn't do it at all. And then I began to look at why some people could do it and others couldn't. And I began to develop what is now a, what, what is now a scientific conclusion, and that is that uh, the key to all of this is the ability to attain and sustain intentioned, focused awareness. And meditators do better than non-meditators because they develop the discipline of attaining and sustaining intention-focused awareness, which is why they teach meditation in martial art dojos and in Buddhist temples and Catholic uh, monasteries. Is this the type of skill or sensitivity that can be improved with work and practice similar to say a musical skill not everybody has the same amount of musical talent but i think almost everybody can get at least a little bit better if they practice um okay this is a rather nuanced uh issue so let me see if i can put it in proper you can become better at it by doing it. First of all, one of the major things that all remote viewers have to overcome is the ability, uh, is not the ability, the, the almost compulsion to analyze what you're looking at. You know, our entire culture is predicated on a on analysis. So if you're good at school and you can figure out the equation or you can pick the, the right facts to give your history teacher or in a test or something like that, well, then you get a lot of positive strokes. Everybody thinks you're a very bright young man and lots of promise. If you tell them that you think the history teacher is going to fall down the stairs and break his leg, they think you're a very weird kid. And if it actually <laughs> happens, they think you're a really weird person and you quickly learn to suppress it. So part of the problem in learning to do it is to learn not to analyze, but simply to allow sense impressions, uh, to report your sense impressions. And there's also a, a more subtle, nuanced thing, which we call knowingness, which is what Einstein said, I know what I know, but I don't know how I know it. So people will give you information that they just they don't know they don't know how they know it but they just do. But most of it is about sense impressions: where something is located, what does it look like, what color is it, is it smooth, is it rough, um, how big is it, how um, uh, what color predominates, um, is it made out of one material or more than one material? Those kinds of questions. And so it's not something you, you, there's two parts to it. You have whatever your native ability is, just like you have a native ability to play tennis or play the violin or play basketball. And if you cultivate that by developing the right skill set, you can get considerably better at it. 
but it is not, you know, people offer all these courses about it. We're going to train you in how you're going to get better, but that isn't how to get at it. The, the key to it is, first of all, don't analyze, obviously, and second of all, um, develop the ability to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness and, but, and the best way to do that that I know of or that the research supports, and I'm a data person, so everything I'm going to tell you is entirely based on data. It's not my ideas. It's not my speculations. Whenever I speculate, I'll tell you that I'm doing that. Um, the key to it is this ability to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness, and uh, the best way that I know to do that is meditation develop the daily practice of meditation. Now, it will also give you all kinds of other benefits. I mean, if meditation is, is, I think, unquestionably the greatest gift you can give yourself because it will raise your IQ, it will improve your health, it will improve your reasoning functions, it will um, enlarge parts of your brain, It'll change your DNA. It'll make you sleep better. It'll give you a better sex life. I mean, it just goes on and on. There are literally thousands of papers about meditation having nothing to do with religion. Most people think of meditation as a religious practice. It would be much more correct to say that religions have understood the importance of meditation and thus incorporated it into their practices. Are these benefits derived from meditation because it, it that practice allows you to clear your mind and open yourself to other uh, sensory uh, reception as opposed to it, it being cluttered and, and kind of you know working through your day and being closed off to those things? Or is there another force at work there? Well, JV, to really get into that question, we have to start at a different point. Let's start here. In 1931, Max Planck, the father of quantum mechanics, as you know, yep. was interviewed by the Observer mag- a newspaper in Great Britain. Now, Planck was not a guy that gave a lot of interviews. And so uh, they finally arranged one, and he met this reporter. And the reporter basically said, not basically, the reporter said to him, Okay, you and Einstein are the two most famous scientists in the world. Um, Everybody acknowledges your brilliance. What have you learned? Now, I don't know what they thought he was going to say, but what he said just blew their socks off because he said, what I've learned is that consciousness is causal and fundamental. This is a quote. You cannot get behind consciousness. Space-time arises from consciousness, not consciousness from space-time. Consciousness is the fundamental. So when you start with that, which is the place to start, mm-hmm. what, what happens with meditation, and the reason I think it is so important, is that it allows you to open to an aspect of yourself that you do not normally think about or are aware of except occasionally for a gut hunch or a woman's intuition or a, you know, a gut feeling, that kind of thing. 
if you start from the idea that consciousness is causal and that space-time arises from consciousness, then you realize that, that there is continuity of consciousness. That is, consciousness existed before you, in your consciousness existed before you incarnated, and it's going to continue after you're gone, maybe not necessarily as you, but that episodically you will, this is all based on the research, but episodically that eternal consciousness, what religion calls the soul, will occasionally, episodically uh, incarnate a personality. So you're not coming back, I'm not coming back, but this eternal part of us will. Now, normally what happens is the, this non-local aspect of consciousness is completely overwhelmed by the sensorium that, uh, of impressions that our neuroanatomy produces. You know, you're flooded with, it's hot, it's cold, it's, uh, the wind is blowing, I can hear sounds, right. colors, uh, my stomach is empty, whatever. You know, we are bombarded constantly with sensorium input, and this still small voice, as the religions call it, um, just gets overwhelmed. And so what happens with meditation is that you teach yourself to uh, allow the, the, the impressions and the cognition of the sensorium to retreat, to, be, to fade into the background, as it were, and you open yourself to this aspect of consciousness. We all have it. Um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be alive if you didn't have it. All We live in a matrix of consciousness. Consciousness is producing space-time. That's uh, stay with Planck. And, by the way, also Heisenberg, Schrodinger, Pauli, Einstein, and the rest of the German greats that created uh, modern physics. Anyhow... When you meditate, you, you still yourself, and so you open to this aspect of yourself that is normally just submerged in all this other input that's going on. And when you do that, then you can manipulate not only your own physical well-being, but you can do things like heal other people, or you can remote view, or you can affect random number generators. Or you can cause changes in behavior. You can change the molecular structure of water. All of this is based on research, by the way. Um, and so that's, again, that's why all of the world's enduring religions, I make a difference between enduring religions and cults, why all the enduring religions emphasize this, this idea of meditation, of of getting in touch with whatever you, you know, there are different words for it, but the, the still small voice is the sort of Christian version. Right. Um, it is a part of who we are. It is the enduring part. It is the part of us that is connected to what in religion we call the soul. Well, connected isn't quite the right word because there's no space, there's no time. So think of it as a matrix of information. The Wolkowski brothers in The Matrix actually were closer to the actual research than they knew, or maybe they did know and they chose to do it that way. But think of reality as a construct of information. 
that is manipulated by consciousness. Now, you're going to ask me the two questions I always get asked. What is information and what is consciousness? And the answer is I have no idea, (laughs) nor does anybody else. There's lots of theories, speculations, philosophies, but nobody really knows. What we do know is a little bit about how to manipulate um, your state of consciousness so that you can access this part of yourself and operationalize it. You said in the beginning of our discussion that uh, I think you first your first term for this was distant viewing, and then you said remote viewing, and you said neither of those is really accurate. If if neither of those terms really describes what's going on, how would you describe it? What what term should we be using? Well, the term that I use is non-local perception. There's basically two kinds of phenomena, and they actually may be the same thing, but. I haven't been able to figure out, nor has anybody else, how to do an experiment that distinguishes. But basically what we've got is non-local perception. That covers clairvoyance, telepathy, precognition, all of those antique terms, which we don't actually use very much in science anymore. Right. And um, non-local perturbation, which would be psychokinesis, telekinesis, telekinesis. what else? I can't think of any other terms right at the moment. But So you're either basically acquiring information, opening to it, but, but there's not a signal, there's not a sender, there's not a receiver. That's the way it usually gets discussed. It's not accurate. And there is uh, perturbation. That is, intentioned consciousness manipulates the structure of reality by manipulating the information that is the... the foundation of which that reality is a manifestation so if i'm understanding you correctly and and we and our consciousness is part of a greater matrix then the the concept here uh would be that that uh matrix provides uh all information everywhere at all times and it's a matter of tapping into it yes that is precisely correct you can get anything that's what freaked people out about remote viewing in a a number of government people because they discovered that there are no secrets. And they found that very (laughs) disturbing. Yes, I could see how they would. (laughs) You know, I mean, um, when you can describe um, the office of a man or a woman, you can describe papers that are on their desk you can describe the facility that they, where they're doing their secret operations, and all of those things are true, um, it freaks people out because the whole idea of secrecy is predicated on the idea that you can't get access to that information. That's right. If you have um, the ability to open yourself to this information because it is around you in this matrix of consciousness. I can understand that. But you and your team and and some of the folks that you've worked with have actually been able to use this to see through time. Start telling us how that works. Well, um, because, again, go back to Planck. Space-time arises from consciousness. So what do we get from that? Well, One of the things we get is that 
it is as easy to describe the teacup in the closet in the next room as it is a teacup in China, thousands of miles away, or there have actually been some research that's been done about describing things on other planets before the space, uh, the Voyager um, got there. So, I mean, things like Jupiter had a ring, for instance, which nobody knew. Right. Anyhow, so time does, uh, space doesn't make any difference. Time is a little different. You can describe things in the present. You can describe things in the past. That's how I found Cleopatra's palace and Mark Anthony's palace and the lighthouse of Pharos, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, or the Brig Leander, or one of Christopher Columbus's caravels, or on and on and on. So you can go into the past. Now, when you ask people to describe the future, it's a little different. Because what they're describing is the highest probability that that future will occur at the moment you are asking, you're giving them the task. And the question is, we know some, although there's not a lot of research, we know a little bit. I'm doing a study now to try to dig deeper into this. But we know that it's possible to describe a future which would have happened but because of decisions that were made after you described it, uh, it didn't happen. So you're describing a probability. Now, you could think of this as collapsing the state in a way, although I don't like to try to, to... I think it's a misuse of physics to try to put space-time physics into non-local consciousness, so I don't do that. But but the two things that we do know about time is that it's quite easy for people to describe things that have been lost for thousands of years, doesn't make any difference, or uh, to describe something in the future. Now, if I'm doing an experiment in a laboratory, for instance, and I say to you, JV, I'm going to show you a picture in an hour or 20 minutes, would you please describe it for me? It's a location somewhere on planet Earth. Well, unless the electricity goes out or, you know, some uh, something happens, there's almost a 100% probability that whatever your answer is, if you're correct, that you will be shown that picture. It gets a little trickier if you go further out and and if you describe larger things, then uh, describe the picture for me. I did, for instance, a study um, between 1978 and 1993, uh, 96, mostly 93, in which I got several thousand people in different countries to remote view the year 2050. And everything that they told me, none of which I believed at the time, has come to pass or is coming to pass. I mean, they said things like, I was worried, and let me give a little context. When I got, I was in government. I was a special assistant to the chief of naval operations, and then I did other work for other people. And, and um, I was privy to uh, briefings on geopolitical issues, and was very concerned we were going to have a nuclear war. And, and I mean, most people 
who studied and were part of the geopolitical intelligence military community at that time were very worried we were going to have a nuclear war. And that's why the Reagan-Gorbachev uh, INF treaty was so important. It ended the Cold War. Anyway, so we were very concerned about nuclear war. So I thought in 78, I will start asking people to look at the year 2050. And the reason 2050 is if you go too far out into the future, you can't understand what they're saying. For instance, uh, uh, Jules Verne wrote, a, a, a fiction authors are often very good at this sort of futurism, much better, than, by the way, than scientists generally. <laughs> uh, uh, Jules Verne wrote a book in which he described Paris in the 60s. And he described it having, there were no horses, there were these internal combustion machines, there were fax machines, and there was this large metal tower that dominated Paris. It was before the Eiffel Tower had been built. Right. And when he took it, when he took it to his editor, his editor said to him, he had written 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which had been wildly successful. His editor said to him, Jules, I'm your friend as well as your editor, and just don't ever show anybody this. Just put it away. We're not going to publish it because it will make you look like a fool. <laughs> None of this stuff could possibly be true. And so he did exactly that. And then in the, uh, in the 70s, one of his heirs inherited a farm that had been his, and there was a little safe underneath a, a table in a workshop in one of the barns. And he said to the farmer who managed the place and What's in the safe? And, and he said, well, I don't know. It's never been opened. So the guy got a, the, the, the heir got a locksmith up, and they opened it, and inside was this manuscript and the correspondence with the editor. That's why we know this, and he published it. And, of course, everything that Vern had said was true. He said corporations dominated merchant life, that women worked in corporations, something unheard of at the time, all that kind of stuff. So I started in '78. And one of the first things I asked people was, is there a nuclear war? And they said no. And, and I said, well, why not? And they said, well, part of the reason is the Soviet Union has disappeared. But again, tonight we're talking with Stefan Schwartz. He is a futurist, a scientist, and an author. His website is stephanaschwartz.com. And his new book is called The Amish Girl. We haven't gotten around to talking about that, but we will. I want to pick up on the idea of remote viewing through time, Stefan. You were talking about the project where you were um, having a group of folks focus on the year 2050. And we left it off with one of the questions that you had asked them, which was, will there be a nuclear war? Their answer was no. And their answer was because there was no there will there will no longer be a Soviet Union. And you asked this question in 1978, well before anyone expected the fall of the uh, communist bloc in the Soviet Union. So that right there tells you something is going on. Um, what other things were discussed about the year 2050? Oh, they told me, uh, so I said to them, uh, oh, by the way, I just relative, I want to say this relative to the a little announcement about the program you're going to do. Yeah, sure. Uh, one of my books called The, uh, the, called, uh, the Awakening is everything I could find out about Aliens, UFOs, that's a whole other story. Um, and so I put it all in a novel called Awakening. Oh, wow, great. That, uh, you, you know, it's up on the website. Anyway, uh, what else did they tell me? Oh, 
Well, I said to them, well, then the world must be much safer. And they said, oh, no, the world is much more dangerous. And I said, really? Why? And they said, well, because of terrorism. Mm -hmm. And, of course, in 1978, the only terrorism anybody talked about was the IRA and, and you know, in Ireland and, and with the British. So that was pretty strange. And then I said, well, you know, anything else? And they said, well, yeah, there are going to be a series of epidemics. And I said, oh, well, tell me about the first one. And they said, well, it's coming very soon. It's going to be a blood disease that crosses over from primates in Africa to humans. And it's going to come to the United States and go all over the world and kill millions of people. So I took this to a friend of mine at the National Institutes of Health, who was a hematologist, and said to him, do you know anything about a blood disease that's going to come out of Africa, crossing over from primates and killing millions of people? I mean, wow. And he said, Stephen, whatever it is you're smoking, quit. <laughs> so I said... <laughs> Well, I can only, you know, that's what I was told. And, of course, in 1981, we yeah, got AIDS. That's right. And uh, it killed 35 million people. Has killed so far 35 million people. Wow. They talked to me about climate change. I had no idea what climate change was. They, You know, I would say to them, because I would ask them where they were, and, you know, I, the, the way this works is I would say, um, I want you to go forward in time to the same day. So today is the 5th of August. So I would say, JV, I want you to go forward in time to the 5th of August, 2050. And um, if you're not incarnate, find somebody whose eyes you can look through that you feel sympathetic with. <clears throat> and when you can do that, tell me. And they'd say, okay, or whatever. And uh, so I would say, well, what part of the world are you in? Now, I did this with people in Russia, people in Japan, people in Mexico, in Jamaica, in Canada, uh, United States, obviously, France, England, so all over. And one of the things that was interesting was they, you know, I would talk to an Englishman and he would say he was in Baltimore. Or I'd talk to a Frenchman and he'd say he was in Tokyo. So it's very interesting, that, that in itself. But in any case, so I started asking them about, well, what happens, what do cities look like in 2050? And, and they said, well, a lot of them on the coast are, are gone. They're underwater. And I said, why are they underwater? Well, I don't understand it, but the sea has risen. Wow. And, um, and of course, this is 78, 80, 81, 85. I didn't hear about climate change. The first article that I ever wrote about climate change was in 1991, after reading an article, a paper in the American Scientist. So I had no idea what to make yeah. of this, but they were all... The, the thing about this kind of remote viewing that I do is I use what I call the, the Mobius Consensus Protocol. So I don't rely on one viewer. It's exactly the sort of thing you would do if you were a journalist or an intelligence officer or a policeman, you know, suppose there was an accident outside of your studio and you ran where you are right now, I don't know where that is, but, and you ran out and there was, or you heard a big explosion and you were a bunch of people that were out in the street looking and what would you do? Well, you'd go up to them one by one and say, what happened? What right, happened? Right. And you, not everybody would see everything. Not everything that they saw would be correct. 
But if you interviewed a lot of people and you put all their interviews together, what you would look for were the things that were consensual, where everybody agreed what had happened, and you'd look for, as we do in the remote viewing work, low a priori observations. For instance, if I ask you to describe a ship and you tell me you see an anchor, well, yeah, of course it's a ship. But if you tell me that... um, the uh, well, this is a true. This is a true one. That there's an amethyst chandelier in the captain's cabin. I don't expect to see that or hear that. And so that's what we call a low a priori. You don't expect things like that. So you pay attention to that. Right. So consensus and low a priori is what we're looking at. And out of these interviews, I did about four thousand of them. Um, this consensus emerged. So what I'm telling you is not. A specific person, but the consensus of all of the people. Right. And and I do the same thing in the archaeology project. Yeah, I, was... I have seven to eleven viewers, and so I, because that way you can tease out, you know, what what's real from what's just analytical overlay or fantasy or whatever. I was going to ask you about the discovery of uh, Cleopatra's palace and some of the other amazing finds. Walk us through how that process worked for you. Uh, which one would you like to do? Whichever you think is the most uh, um, typ- well, uh, typical of do, the process. Let's do, let's do Alexandria because you can actually watch the movie. Okay. You can go up to YouTube and do a Google on the Alexandria Project. And you can actually watch this. what I'm about to tell you. Happen. Perfect, perfect. And I'm going to tell you the story of particularly... Uh, not the Cleopatra's Palace, which is underwater, by the way, uh, but because you can see it. In, well, okay, we'll do Cleopatra's Palace. So I was approached by two women historians in 1978. I had just done uh, a submarine experiment to test whether remote viewing was an electromagnetic phenomena, which is what most people thought. They thought non-local consciousness was electromagnetic in some way that nobody could understand, but that's what it was. So the only way to test that would be to put somebody in a submarine because seawater shields out electromagnetic radiation. So I had put together this project when I was now out of the government, I'd left government, and, and you can go see this too. Just go to YouTube and do a Google on DeepQuest. You can watch the whole thing. Anyhow, so I was approached because DeepQuest got a lot of attention, I was approached by two women historians who came to me and said, we're studying Alexandria, Egypt, about which I knew nothing. Uh, could you find, would it be possible to find uh, Cleopatra's Palace and Mark Anthony's Palace and one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Lighthouse of Pharaohs, and could you find Alexander the Great's tomb? And I said, I don't have any idea, but we can certainly try. If you can get the funding, I'll do it. So they got the funding, and we did it. And I sent, the way this process works is I obtained from the British Navy a sea chart of Alexandria, and I take all, I take the names off and I take all the colors off because there's research that shows people get attracted to certain colors and that kind of thing. So I take all the names and colors off, and I make like a blueprint, not like a, I make a blueprint. So it's all this kind of 
you know, fuzzy blue-gray thing and the outline. It's all just the outline. And so I went, I, I got 11 people uh, who were scattered all over the world. I sent them a copy of this map, and I said to them, I didn't tell them it was in Alexandria. I didn't tell them anything. I said, would you please go over this map? And there, I, I sent them an un, a series of envelopes and that were sealed, and in each envelope, which was numbered, there was a question, because I wasn't going to be present when they were doing this. They didn't know each other. They didn't know there were other people, you know, anyway. So when they opened the envelope, the first envelope said, uh, please go over this map, and um, can you locate uh, the Lighthouse of Pharos? And if you can, mark it on the map. And make me, if you can do that, once you've done the location, make me a drawing of what it looked like. Now, describe for me its current, present circumstances, and um, uh, tell me what I'll see if I go there to this place you've picked. And then the next question was the Cleopatra, and the next was Mark Anthony, and the next was Alexander. You know, so it's a series of questions. Right. And so each person marked up his map, and he made a... a uh, audio tape recording of the um, of his answers or her answers and they sent them back to me and when I got the answers all back and I had them transcribed what I do is I take every sentence that they say and I break it down into its concepts so if I said oh uh, let's see uh, the man, I don't know where, uh, the, the man sitting in, in the studio has a blue shirt and he's, he's sitting there and there's a black microphone in front of him with a silver front part, okay? Well, that would be, that's just one sentence, right. but it would be man sitting, blue shirt, microphone, black, silver, that's seven concepts. So every one of those concepts gets an individual alphanumeric designator. So if you're the very first viewer, it would be R1 colon 1. That is first viewer, first concept, first viewer, second concept, and so forth. And I assemble all of that material together from all the viewers. And what happens is when you begin to look at the, look at the concepts, you see patterns emerge. You see people, multiple people saying the same thing. Later on, that becomes also important because every single concept is independently evaluated for accuracy by experts who have nothing to do with any other part of the experiment. And so they go through and evaluate. These are all people who are authorities in whatever it is we're doing. And they evaluate it, and we expect to see about... 35 to 40 percent of the material we can never evaluate. It's things like Cleopatra was thinking of her mother as the ass bitter. Well, I, you know, unless somebody <laughs> recorded that at the time, there's no way it could be right, but you don't know. Right. So between 35 and 40 percent of these concepts, and there are thousands of them, um, will be judged not evaluatable. Possibly right, but you can't tell. Of the remaining part, we expect to see between 75 and 85 percent be judged correct or partially correct, but operational. That was uh, the man sitting has actually has a, a, a check shirt. So, he, so the important part is he has a shirt. 
and but they're wrong. It's not. Maybe it's a blue check shirt. So the blue is. Some people miss the check part. So it's that's partially correct, but operational. If you see what I mean. Yep. And then we expect to see oh about eleven percent be wrong. So you're working with about seventy-five to eighty-five percent of the material is correct or partially correct, but operational. And you develop a set of hypotheses. Before you haven't done any field work at all. Then what you do is you develop these hypotheses which are going to guide the field work. It's like with a manual. So then I would I, I made arrangements with many universities. There were five universities got involved with this, but most notably uh, 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 two people, a man named Peter Fraser, who was the world's leading historian on Alexandria, Egypt, and a man named Mikulowski Rajevich, who was the world's leading archaeologist on Alexandrian archaeology at that time, as well as Daoud Abu Daoud, who was the secretary general of the Alexandria Archaeological Society and a professor at the university, and Mustafa El Abedi, who was the chairman of the Department of, of uh, Anthropology and Archaeology at the university. So I get a lot of people involved. I don't ask them to believe it. I don't care. I, I film all these experiments so that there's no question what happened. I turn all the data over and my analysis over to a third party before we do the field work, and it's notarized and put in a vault un not under my control. So there's an unimpeachable chronology. And so then you go and you, you work out deals with the archaeologists to conduct the archaeology. I don't do the archaeology. I, I see that it's done at the very highest standards. And as I said, I run a parallel search. So in this case, for instance, in the Alexandria project, uh, Cleopatra's Palace, Mark Anthony's Palace, the Lighthouse of Pharos, um, are all underwater, and that's what the viewers said. I mean, nobody thought that, but that turns out to be true. Um, when does the field work come into this? Well, now you have a series. You've, you've now done the analysis. You have developed the hypotheses to guide the field work. You turn all of that over, and you have it notarized by an independent third party who takes it from you and vaults it so that you have established an unimpeachable chronology. Nobody can say, oh, well, you made that up after you found it, right. you know, whatever. Um, I just, I try to design all my experiments so that uh, I anticipate all the criticisms I'm going to get and get rid of them because I want to talk about the results. I don't want to talk about, you know, if only you'd used whatever, blah, 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 it wouldn't have happened. Right, right. So I just, oh, I, by the way, this is also important. I circulate the, uh, the protocol and hypotheses document to both proponents and opponents, and I ask them to tell me what's wrong with the experiment. So I get them on record before I do the field work, mm -hmm. and if they make suggested changes, I just make the changes because none of the things they ever criticize make any difference. So... Um, so now you've, you've got the field work guidance that you've created, and you go to the archaeologists, and you show them the map, and you say, I would like you to do a dig here. And this is what I think you're going to find. <coughs> and um, this is what I want you to particularly look for. And they do that. 
and they get, you know, they do it the way they do anything. They have their graduate students and their assistant professors, and, you know, you get teams of people that do this sort of stuff, and they do it. And then when it's all done, you ask independent experts to look at the data that the actual excavation produced and to compare it with the protocol and hypothesis document. That's how we get the accuracy ratings. In the case of Cleopatra's Palace and some of these other really amazing finds, you said they were underwater. Is this is it the same process there? Yeah, it doesn't make any difference. Yeah. As you um, looked for some of these things, when you approach the scientific community, you said you, you offer this information to both proponents and opponents and get their reaction. I mean, obviously, you've, you've been able to produce uh, demonstrable results. Do you change anybody's mind if they started out in the opponent camp? Um, mo- well, most opponents, JV, are not interested in facts. Right, right. They have a materialist perspective, and basically they tell you it's impossible, this can't happen. So it's, as I say, I, you know, I, I'll give you an example. I went to uh, a, a guy named Bob Guccione, used to own a magazine called Omni, and, um, which was a science magazine. Yep. And I met him, um, he was a very strange dude, but I met him. And I asked him if he would give me two of his issues over, this happened over two years, if he'd give me two issues and let me run these mass tests. So I got, these are mass remote viewing tests and precognitive tasks. And that's, that's a whole other story. But I'm just to illustrate this point about the, the deniers. So I said to this one denier, I sent it to him and I asked him, you know, what's wrong with the experiment? And this one required a random number generator. So he wrote me back and said, well, I don't think this can't possibly work, but I particularly would not believe a word of it unless you used, I don't remember exactly what it was, but a Mark One Mod Zero uh, random number generator. So I wrote him back and said, well, as it happens, I've been consulting with the remote viewing, uh, the uh, random number generator corporations that make these things, and I'm using a Mark One Mod Two, which is two generations past the one you want. Is that okay? <laughs> and of course, I mean, he was just kind of embarrassed. Right. Um, anyway, no, I don't think you change people who hold. It's like a religion. They have a, a it's a it's a religious view, a, yeah. a religion of materialism, and they are not really interested in facts. They have a position. It can't work. It isn't possible. Consciousness is entirely a product of physiological processes. Dead meat, no consciousness. Therefore, what you're trying to do can't be possible. I mean, it's lit. I mean, they literally say that. I mean, and they say it as recently as a few weeks ago in a publication. <laughs> this can't be possible, so therefore it must be impossible. We don't care about data. Data doesn't matter because it's it's impossible. So, no, I don't think you change many people's minds. What you do do, if you do it the way I do, is you don't get a lot of criticism. People ignore you sometimes, right. but they can't criticize you. So I've been doing this, I've been doing this now for 50 years, 
and I've done dozens of these kinds of things. <laughs> the mo- one of the most recent ones was Saddam Hussein, and um, I don't get criticized. As I say, you can get ignored. Right. Uh, you can. They may not publish it in their journal, but um, they don't criticize it because I've already asked them before I did it to criticize it. And I've already done all the things that they said that they demand be changed. So what are they going to say? We he he told us what he was going to do. He asked us to criticize him. We criticized him. He made the changes, and it still worked. I mean, no, they're not going to say that. So no, but it's very sad. So you you just mentioned Saddam Hussein. Did you remote view his location? Oh, that's a very interesting. You can get these papers, by the way. If you go up to academia.edu or go to ResearchGate, you can freely download all these papers I'm talking about. Yeah, well, Saddam Hussein, um, do you want to do questions? I mean, you know, all these stories take time, and I know you've got viewers that maybe want to ask questions, so I'll be happy to do another time something, but I just want you to be able to get your people in if you want to yeah i, I want uh, let's let's go with this question for now and i also want to chat about your book briefly so let's let's see what we can fit in here so did you did you help with the effort to find him we don't know all right i gotta tell you the story okay i was in virginia beach i was uh, speaking at a conference and uh doing a about work remote viewing just what I, we're doing now and i was there were uh i just i i was asked to teach a workshop on how to do it, and I agreed to do that. And so I had, um, I think it was uh, 64 people took the workshop, many of whom were in the intelligence community, military. It was down in Virginia Beach near Hampton Roads, which is, a you know, huge and near Langley. It's, it's lots and lots of military and right. intelligence people. So they came to me after the first morning of the workshop and said, oh, this is all great. But could we do something practical? You're you're known for doing practical things. Could we do something practical? So I went. We broke for lunch, and I went up to have lunch. And on the the table at the I sat down at the restaurant. There was a paper, and the lead story on the paper was the search for Saddam Hussein, and they couldn't find him. This was in um, November, uh, November the third, and. Um, so I thought, well, that's a perfect uh, remote viewing experiment. So I came back and I said to them, how would you guys like to locate Saddam Hussein? And, of course, they were very interested in doing that because a lot of them were in that world. So I got them to do a remote viewing. Just what I've described to you is that there were 47 of them, I think, that did it. And I did the analysis just as I described it to you. And I turned it over to the archivist. Uh, I had it all notarized and turned it over to the archivist, just as I explained to you. And the story that they told now uh, uh, was that Saddam Hussein would be found near a village, near the village of. He would be found in a small village near Tikrit in Iraq. That he would be hiding in a little dugout hole at the bottom, underneath a building, in this little compound that the compound was notable because it had a road in front of it and a river behind it, and it had this funny little second story, which only covered the top, uh, about an eighth of the top of the building. They made a little drawing of it. You can see the drawing if you get the paper. 
and that it had big, uh, uh, two big trees, one at each end of the thing, that he would be found with a box full of money, that he would have a gun but would not resist, that he would only have two or three people with him, that he would look like a homeless person, that he would be in, in uh, black and white clothes with a salt and pepper beard, and he would look ratty um, like a homeless person, put up no resistance, and be depressed and resigned. And none, of course, my personal view was, at the time, was that Saddam Hussein would do just what Idi Amin did, and that is he would go to some Saudi prince and pay him off. I mean, he had unlimited money, and he'd get him a safe house somewhere in Saudi Arabia, and, and he'd try to come back into power, which is just what Idi Amin did, right. who had just died, by the way, who had just, so he was very much in mind. I just couldn't believe I had read that Saddam Hussein only wore a shirt one time. I mean, he didn't get it laundered and then wore it. I mean, he wore it one time. <laughs> Same thing with suits. He must have had hundreds of suits. And he was absolutely impeccable about his personal hygiene and a bit of a germaphobe. So I just couldn't imagine the story they were telling me. Anyway, um, that's the story they told me. And so I came back the next day and said to him, I've done the analysis, and here's your consensus, and I, just what I told you, and, and so I, I, that was it. And I just never thought I'd hear another word about it, because I had no way of checking that. Anyway, they found him on, the, I think it was the 13th of December, 2003. And, of course, everything they had said was exactly correct. It was exactly correct. Exactly correct. And all these little drawings and everything was exactly correct. So I thought, wow, that's really amazing. I wonder if we played any role. But nobody called me. Nobody said anything. And then about two weeks later, I went out to get my mail. And in the mailbox was a manila envelope with no address and no return address. And the only thing it contained was two pictures. And the two pictures were the pictures that were clearly taken uh, at the time of his capture and they showed him in his, he looked like a homeless person in a, with a salt and pepper beard and black and white dress yeah, yeah. and the box of money. And um, that he was, and of course, in the briefings that came out about the, he was in a little hole underneath with the vent pipe. They drew the vent pipe and all the other stuff. It all came through. So the question is, why did those two pictures show up in my mailbox with no note, nothing, just the two pictures? And the only thing I can think of is that it was a way of saying thank you. Yeah. But did it play a role? I have no idea. Sounds like a confirmation to me. <laughs> um, I'm going to apologize to our to our callers here. We're just going to simply run out of time. Um, but we will have Stefan on again. Uh, before we let you go, the Amish girl, it ties into the remote viewing discussion we've had. Tell us a little bit about this book. Well, the Amish girl, as I told you, my the, the, one of the novels, The Awakening, is about aliens and and why I, what I think aliens are doing, and all the research that I was able to do. And Awakening is the second volume of a series on remote viewing, and it's actually based on a true story. Uh, I was approached to find out what had happened to a fourteen-year-old Amish girl, and we were able to do that in the man who committed the murder, she was murdered, and the, the, the man who committed the murder um, was brought, who was not a suspect, but on the basis, 
of, first of all, we located the body, and, um, and they went to look, and they couldn't find it, and they called me up. This was the district attorney, a guy named Mike, Michael Rank, and uh, the state police commander. Um, they went and looked exactly where we told them, and they couldn't find it. But about two weeks later, a hunter it was in a game, what are called game lands in Pennsylvania, uh, a hunter who was out deer hunting uh, found the body exactly where and how we described it. So that convinced them, oh, my goodness, maybe there's something to this. And uh, they then began looking at this, uh, the people that were uh, the murderer, as he was described. And there was only one person that fit the, the bill of the description. And they brought him in. And one of the things that the remote viewers had said was, after he raped and killed this girl, he put her in the back. He had a big black car. He put her in the trunk of the car, and he drove her around, and he got hungry. He was panicked. He didn't know what to do with the body. And he was panicked, and he um, uh, stopped at a White Castle, and he ate three hamburgers, very specific, three hamburgers. So they brought this guy in, and they, and they, I mean, this is a much longer story, and uh, they interviewed him, and, of course, he denied everything. They had no evidence. But finally, uh, Rank said to him, look, I know you murdered this girl. You know you murdered this girl. I get that. I see murder. Okay, it happens. What I don't get is how in the world you could kill a 14-year-old girl after raping her and put her body in the back of your car and then stop at a White Castle and eat not one, not two, but three hamburgers. Right. How could you do that? At which point the lawyer said, hmm, can I talk to my client? And the guy, it was a question of whether he was going to go to the gas chamber or go to jail for the rest of his life. And um, he chose jail, obviously. Yeah. And so he's in jail as you and I are doing this interview. Wow. And I decided to novelize that story and add another project that I did at the same time. And so... I, I decided I talked to a bunch of millennials, and they told me they don't really read a lot of nonfiction. They read novels, adult comic books. They play video games. They do social media, and they look at television series on Netflix and stars and, you know, all the rest of it. And I th went home and thought, well, geez, I've been writing nonfiction. They don't read nonfiction, so I, can, I don't know anything about adult comic books, and I don't play video games, and I don't do social media. <laughs> except for doing Schwartz reports. So I'll just write novels, and I'll put all the science that I know about remote viewing and how it's actually done, and I will draw on these stories. I've got lots of them, of these stories of cases that I worked on or projects that I worked on, and I'll turn them into novels, and that's what I've done. Well, Stefan, it's 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 fascinating. The book is available on Amazon, as you said. You can link through to it through your website, Thank you so much for being here. Very, very interesting discussion. We hope you'll come back soon. Absolutely. Nice to talk to you, JV. I don't know. I mean, if, if Eddie doesn't want to come out and say it himself, I, I'm nothing I can do about it. But, you know, I mean, he's at one point he's going to have to come out here and talk for himself. You know that, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks to Stefan Schwartz. We appreciate him being on the program. It's really, really interesting stuff. Check out his book, The Amish Girl. As he said, it's a novelized version of a true story. Uh, very interesting. Tomorrow night, we'll be talking about UFOs. Our guest will be Gerard Artson. He's an educator and author and a student of the Ageless Wisdom. He asserts that people behind the UFOs are actually on a spiritual mission to help 
our ailing world. I would have to say we could probably use it. So that's tomorrow night's show. Uh, it's Beyond Reality Radio. We'll catch you tomorrow night. Thanks for being here. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.